Amen. And may God bless his word to us. And may he be with us now as we seek to draw your attention to some of these things that we find in these verses from verse 5 to 10 of chapter 1 of Jonah. We looked at some of these verses last week and we looked particularly at the reaction of the sailors, of the mariners who were idolaters, who were heathen, and they were in turmoil. And you'll know the story well that because of Jonah's disobedience, the Lord sent a great storm upon them. And these seafaring hard men were afraid. They were afraid of their lives. They recognized that this was no ordinary storm. And if nothing changed, they were going to perish. And we noticed that because of this, they began to call. They began to pray and call upon their false gods. And we drew a lesson from that. And the lesson is quite clear. That every man has within him a sense of divinity. He has a sense of God. And he may well be an atheist. And he may well live as a practical atheist. But when he is confronted with his mortality. And when death is on the doorstep. Then he begins to realize. Like he never did before. That he's going into eternity. He's going to meet his God. And he is going to meet the one true and the living God. And we notice, friends, that although they were calling upon their idol gods, yet God has put within every single person this knowledge of the one true and the living God. And that knowledge come to, comes to us by creation. Creation demands a creator. And that's external evidence, if you like. But God has also revealed himself in eter internally in our conscience. And these two evidences of the one true and the living God will provide enough information so that we are without excuse, as Paul says in Romans chapter 1, but that evidence, that information, that knowledge is not enough to save us. We need special revelation. Well, last week we looked really at the, the reaction of these sailors and how they feared for their very existence and how keen they were to survive. They threw out their cargo. They threw out the things that were precious to them, the things of time, the things of this world, the things that had caused them to go on their journey initially when their lives were in peril. They looked upon these things as nothing but baubles, things that could easily be disposed of, whereas once upon a time they occupied their chiefest thoughts. Their hearts were filled with these things. And that's the case. That's the case with every one of us. When we come, friends, to the deathbed, if we have a deathbed experience, we'll find that the things of this world will not matter to us then. On that day, friends, we will want something more than that. What will we want? We will want Jesus Christ. We will want a Savior. We will want one who will take us to glory. 
And therefore, surely the lesson is clear that we are to embrace Christ today. Therefore, now we want to look at Jonah's reaction. And we have one or two things that we want to say about Jonah's reaction during the storm. And indeed, it was a terrific, terrible storm. Well, first thing, what do we notice from these verses? Jonah slept. Verse 5, we're told at the, uh, towards the end, but Jonah was gone down into the sides of the ship. Possibly, to be charitable, he did this before the storm came. We cannot be certain, but the likelihood is that he retired before the storm came. And as he lay and was fast asleep. It's quite clear, though, that he was fast asleep while the storm was raging. Now, some commentators are not very charitable to Jonah at this point. Well, we are going to be charitable towards him. We're not going to excuse him, of course, but we are going to be charitable to him because I firmly believe that Jonah, when he retired, when he began his journey, when he retired, when he went down the side of the ship, and when he went to sleep, he went there and did that because he was physically, mentally, and spiritually exhausted. He had come to an end of himself. Why do I say this? Well, he was struggling against God. He was fighting against God. God had given him a clear command, go to Nineveh, and you were to proclaim a message to Nineveh. That was God's command to the prophet, and the prophet knew this. And the moment he knew this, he began to resist it. And everything went well for him. Providence was there, leading him and guiding him as he thought. The ship was there, the fear was there, everything's rosy, but nevertheless he was struggling against the call of the living God. Why do I say this? What evidence? Well, we didn't read verse 3 today, but we read it on another occasion. Verse 3, the first line there, but Jonah rose up to flee. Here is action. This is Jonah getting up and he's running. He's fleeing. He's turning aside from what God has authorized him to do. Verse 10, we did read towards the end of verse 10. For the men knew that he fled from the presence of the Lord. I put it to you, friends, that these things are telling us that yes, he was disobedient, but he was disobedient primarily against God and against his conscience. And because of this, he was physically mentally and spiritually exhausted. He wanted to get some rest. He had been wrestling against God. What about ourselves today? What about ourselves? Are you wrestling against God? Is God pricking your conscience? 
maybe through the preaching of the word here on uh, or on other occasions, or maybe God is pricking your conscience through providence, or maybe God is pricking your conscience through another Christian speaking to you, or even indeed an unbeliever speaking to you. God has many arrows in his quiver. He has many weapons that he can use. Well, Jonah was wrestling and he was exhausted. And maybe that describes you. Maybe that describes you today. In a metaphorical sense, you're here, but maybe you're sleeping. This is what we find here. Jonah slept. Maybe it's time that you woke up, madam. Maybe it's time you woke up, sir. Maybe it's time you stopped wrestling against God. I'm thinking here, friends, about the Apostle Paul, when he was Saul, what was he like? He was kicking against the pricks. He was fighting against his conscience. God was troubling him. The gospel was troubling him. The Lord Jesus Christ was troubling him. He was active and he went out on the road to Damascus. What did he want to do? He wanted to raise, gather together the Christians and hound them together and take them back to Jerusalem and he was going to sort them out. That's what he was going to do. When he encountered the Savior, the risen Lord Jesus, on that glorious, wonderful experience on Damascus Road, when he saw the light and heard the voice, do you know, friends, when he was converted, he could do nothing. He went back to the house in Damascus. Three days, three nights, he didn't eat or drink. Why? He was exhausted because his struggle was over. Well, you may well be struggling. You may be going against your own conscience. God is pricking your conscience. He's revealing to you your great need of Christ. He's revealing to you your sinfulness. He's revealing to you you're not ready for eternity. And you are fighting against it. And maybe, in some sense, you're asleep. You know, the Bible talks a lot about sleep. Surprising, it does. It's so natural, we would say, but... God, in his goodness, gives us sleep. Something we need. He gives his beloved sleep. We're all mortal. We're all weak in that sense, and we need our sleep. But this was a sleep that he should not have been engaged in. And maybe there are people here who are, who are actually in the house of God, but they're asleep. They're asleep to their need of Christ. They don't realize how close eternity is. They are but one step from eternity. And here we are in the house of God, and in some real way, Christ and his claims have been presented to you time and time, but you are asleep to it. Even Christians can be asleep. Paul, writing to the Ephesians, Wherefore he saith, Awake thou that sleepest. Is that not a word for us today? 
Are you sleeping, Christian? Do you not see what's happening all around you? Do you not see that you're heading towards eternity and you're sleeping on the way? Arise from the dead and Christ shall give thee light. That's what Paul said to the Ephesians. And these Ephesians were ones who had turned from idolatry. But he tells them, Awake thou that sleepest. Are there people in a congregation sleeping? Have you come to the house of God for a sleep? Well, friends, we have homes to sleep in. We have beds to sleep in. This is a time when our attention should be at its peak. We should be drinking in these things. We should be delighting in the house of God. Romans tells us, Paul again, in that practical chapter, in Romans chapter 12, verse 11, not slothful in business. Now, he's not talking about secular business. I mean, we're not to be slothful in secular business, but that's not what he's talking about. He's talking about spiritual business. And many Christians are slothful and they're not careful about spiritual things. Not slothful in business, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. Was that the way that Jonah was? No, it was not. And maybe today we are slothful. Look at your life. Consider your Christian life. Look back to the time when you first embraced the Lord Jesus. Were you not more on fire then? And has your maturity caused you to be slothful in the things of God? You are to be earnest. You are to be serious. You are to pursue holiness and righteousness. You are to seek to be conformed to the Lord Jesus Christ. No one in the kingdom of God gets a P45. No one in the kingdom of God say, is told, don't turn up on Monday. Not slothful in business. We notice this also in Thessalonians. When we looked at Thessalonians, Paul again uh, speaking to the Thessalonian church in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 6. Let us not sleep as others do, but let us watch and be sober. This could indeed be a word for Jonah, but it's a word for us today. Is it not true that in some real sense the people out there in the world who know nothing of Christianity or nothing meaningful about Christianity, and is it not true they're asleep in some sense? They're being driven by the world. They're embracing all kinds of entertainment and their mind is filled with things that are trivialities. And in some sense, they are sleeping their way to a lost eternity. This cannot be the way of the Christian. Therefore, let us not sleep as do others. But let us watch and be sober. And the final word on this will go to the Savior. And how apt and how appropriate are his words. He's teaching the people in Mark chapter 13. 
He's teaching about the destruction of Jerusalem and he's also speaking about the end of the age when he will return and in power and in great glory. And what does he say to his own disciples? And remember this sermon that Jesus spoke to them in Mark chapter 13. It was directed first and foremost to his own people, to his beloved disciples. Watch ye therefore, for ye know not when the master of the house cometh at even or at midnight or at the cock crowing or in the morning lest coming suddenly he find you sleeping. Will he find you sleeping? Jonah was sleeping. He was sleeping principally because he was exhausted. We're not going to excuse him, but we can sympathize with him that he was exhausted because he was fighting against Almighty God. Well, secondly, we have here Jonah rebuked, verse 6. What does it say? So the shipmaster came to him and said unto him, What meanest thou, O sleeper? Arise, call upon thy God. Here, do we not have the world rebuking the saint, the unbeliever rebuking the believer. There was turmoil here. The ship was being tossed to and fro. The men were crying out to their false gods. And here was someone who was totally oblivious to it. He was in deep sleep. And the captain goes and wakes him, shakes him. Oh, what are you doing here? What kind of person are you that you can see and sleep through this? There's a verse in Proverbs which would be very appropriate to quote here and apply it to Jonah. How long wilt thou sleep, O sluggard? When wilt thou arise out of thy sleep? And indeed, the book of Proverbs has much to say about sleep. And the, the mariner, the shipmaster, could well have used this verse. It would be very accurate and appropriate. How long wilt thou sleep? O sluggard, when wilt thou arise out of thy sleep? Is there a lesson for the believer here? Yes, we've dealt with sleep already. We're not going to go over it. But there is another lesson here for us. Here we have the idolater rebuking the believer. This is something that Christians need to take on board. The idolater, the heathen, the unbeliever, he will know very little relatively about the Word of God. He will know next to nothing about Christianity. It will be almost impossible to get him to come in to the church. He's not interested in sermons. No matter how great they might be, no matter how, how fiery, how lively, he's not interested. Give him a Bible, he doesn't want to read it. He's not interested. 
And although he may be largely ignorant about Christianity, yet he knows how the Christian should behave. He knows how you should conduct your life. He might not like it. It might be a rebuke to him because your life is totally different from his life. And by your behavior, by your conversation, by your manner, by your dress, by everything about you, you may be an offense to him. But he knows how you should behave. And he knows what is required of a Christian. And when you don't live up to that requirement, he will tell you. You are therefore to be, does not the Bible say, living epistles? You are to take with you the aroma of Christ as you engage with people as you will, because we live in a world whereby we need to engage with individuals who do not agree with us and who know nothing of Christianity, but they will know what's required. And when they see you stepping out of line, they will not be quick, or I should say they will not be slow to draw it to your attention. And therefore you are to be very circumspect. You are to abstain from all appearance of evil. I believe that comes from 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Anything that has an appearance of evil. It might not be evil in itself. But anything that could lead the, the unbeliever to question you and to probe you, you are to be careful. Because you are to be living epistles. Jonah here was rebuked. And we can understand why. The people there on the ship, they were moments from being drowned. And Jonah should have been there praying, calling upon his gracious God. Instead, he hears the voice of rebuke. Well, what does this man say to him? What meanest thou, O sleeper, arise, call upon thy God? If so be that God will think upon us, that we perish not. The third thing we're to notice here is that Jonah was prayerless. He was prayerless. There's no evidence here that he called upon God. There is no evidence whatsoever that he obeyed the rebuke that the captain gave to him. Call upon thy God. But he didn't. His mouth was closed. His tongue was tied. Why was this so? Have we got a reason for it? Can we find a reason? Well, we believe we can. What is that reason? Well, we go back to the fact that Jonah was a disobedient servant. At this point in his life, he was living outside the will of God for him. 
and he couldn't pray. This is a challenge for us. Anyone who knows anything about prayer will know that prayer is never easy. And we're not particularly talking about public prayer. In one sense, public prayer can be easier than private prayer. But closet prayer, where a man or woman is before God on their knees, where it's just God and them alone, that can be difficult. And no one's going to deny it. But when we're living a disobedient life, and of course we're here talking about a, a believer. I mean, Jonah was a believer, and he was something more than a believer, we might say. He was a, a prophet. He was, what we would say in modern terms, he was an office bearer. He was, we're not going to say a higher status than a private Christian, we don't believe that, but he had greater responsibilities. Let's put it like that. He was not just a private Christian. He was God's representative. He had a divine calling and a divine mission, and he should live accordingly. But he was being disobedient at this particular junction in his life. And therefore, when he was asked to, call, to be called upon to pray, he couldn't. His mouth was closed. His tongue stuck to the roof of his mouth. He couldn't call upon the name of the Lord his God. Maybe that's your experience. Having said all we said about how difficult prayer is, even when we're walking closely with the Lord, if we are far from him, if we're living a life of disobedience, if we're living against our conscience, you cannot expect to enjoy close communion and fellowship with God in prayer. It's as clear and as simple as that. Jonah, a great prophet, a man called and separated apart for this work, found himself on this occasion prayerless. In order to pray then, friends, we are to be ones who are living a life of obedience, not dwelling in any known sin, but knowing repentance daily and exercising faith in the Lord Jesus Christ each and every day. While failing his prayerlessness, they cast lots. Verse 7, we're told, come and let us cast lots. They wanted to find out why this evil had come upon them, and they didn't know. They did not know, and this was one way that they might find out Somehow they believed that if they cast lots, God in his wonderful sovereignty would reveal the culprit. So they committed themselves to this way of finding out what they themselves ordinarily could not find out. And having found out, 
that Jonah was responsible and the lot fell upon Jonah. And then they asked for an explanation. Tell us, we pray thee, verse 8, for whose cause this evil is upon us? What is thine occupation? And whence comest thou? What is thy country? And of what people art thou? And here we're going to close. Because here we find in this fourth point that Jonah reveals all. He reveals all. And he said unto them, verse 9, I am an Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, which hath made the sea and the dry land. We might look at this revelation from Jonah, and we might say, well, it's a strange revelation to say that I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, which hath made the sea and the dry land. But Akshafat, friends, it was a, a revelation of his faith in the living God. Oh, he wasn't living up to the light that he knew. But here, when he says, I fear the Lord. He was in actual fact here telling them that God was moving and God was working in his life. He believed that ultimately this had come upon them because of his disobedience. And that God was doing something. He was a true fearer of God. And because he was a child of God, and because God had his hand upon him, he believed that God was ultimately working in this situation which would ultimately bring about his good. He would be restored. He didn't know the outcome. He didn't know what was going to happen to him. But he says, I fear the Lord, and I know that God is in this storm. I don't know everything else, but this I know, that God is with me. It's like, not exactly similar, but it's like when the Apostle Peter denied the Lord Jesus Christ, and when Christ was restoring Peter to the apostleship, he asked basically the same question three times, lovest thou me, lovest thou me, lovest thou me? And Peter, at the end, after the third question, what does he say? Thou knowest all things. Thou knowest that I love thee. Thou knowest. I don't know these things, but the Lord does. Well, this is like what Jonah is saying here. I fear the Lord. And he's working out his plans and purposes. What he's going to do, I don't know. But I fear him. 
This, friends, is wonderful. You might be like Jonah. You might be fighting against your conscience. You might be disobedient to the living God. Well, the Bible would teach us that if you're truly a, truly a believer, if God has his hand upon you, he will not let you go. He will intervene. He will do what is required. He will restore you. He will draw you in. He will discipline you. He will move heaven and earth in order that you would be brought in, into the fold. He will not leave you because you belong to him. Now, what do we find here? When the men heard these things after the questions they asked, what do we find in verse 10? Then were the men exceedingly afraid. Verse 5, we began our reading, the, the mariners were afraid. They were afraid in the storm, and the storm was raging, and after Jonah had given his testimony, as it were, they were more afraid than ever, because they recognized that they were in the hands of the living God, and he was doing as he pleases. And they could see it. Here it was. A tremendous storm like they'd never seen before. And God was looking upon his prophet and working upon his prophet in this manner. What will, they, what will God do to us? If that's the way he treats his people, what will God do to us? What are we? And they went from being afraid to exceedingly afraid. But Jonah, I fear the Lord. They, friends, were afraid. Yes, they were afraid of circumstances. They were afraid of their mortality. They were afraid of going into eternity. They were afraid of all of these things. They were exceedingly afraid. But Jonah says, I fear the Lord. They were afraid of their circumstances. Jonah was one who feared the Lord. Jonah in the storm. Friends, if we're in the storm, what are we to do? We're to fear the Lord. We're to recognize that whatever he is doing, it is ultimately for the good of his people and for the good of his cause. We are to fear him, not the storm. Amen. And may God bless his word to us.